Amen. Wow. How wonderful. Often during the course of a week or series of weeks, the Lord just reminds me how much I love you guys and what a privilege it is to come and stand before you and share his word with you. So I just got to tell you, all I love you all. And I uh, look forward to sharing the Lord's Word today with you. So join me in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, often when we're doing theology, someone will say, and rightly so, but sometimes um, a little too early in the process, somebody will say, but well, what's the bottom line of this? What is the application? Give me, give me the thing that comes from this. I know that there's this theology behind what we're supposed to do, but what what is the bottom line? Well, that's kind of what's happening in chapter 10. The writer to the Hebrews comes pretty much to the apex of his teaching in a summary statement in chapter 10, saying to us how all of this messianic plan of the ages comes together in one person, in Jesus, and that apex is verse 14. So put your eyes there for just a moment. Hebrews 10:14 and look and see this is sort of that giant statement that global statement of the gospel he says for by one offering Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified and we spent a lot of time last week breaking that down and then he gives some Beautiful consequences of that, but the primary consequence is found in verse 17. And it is this joyful proclamation of eternal, permanent, perfect forgiveness. Verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. And so he summarizes the gospel statement and its consequences. Verse 17. 15, 14, the gospel statement, verse 17, is consequences. And then he's going to say, okay, so here's what you do. If you embrace this, if you trust this, if this has happened to you, if you've been born of the Spirit, if God has written His law on your heart, He's, he's inscribed them in your mind. If he's given you a new heart, if he saved you, if he's regenerated you, all of the words that we use to describe our relationship with God in Christ, if that has happened to you, he's going to say, therefore, some action should spring from that. So let's pick up in verse 19. He says, since, therefore. Now, what is interesting about verses 19 through 25 is that the writer to the Hebrews wants to hone in on three relationships that are vital to your survival as a believer. They're vital to your health as a believer. They're vital to your walk. And he's going to talk about those three relationships. He's going to put them in a priority order. And he's going to talk about how those relationships are given and maintained. Those three relationships are vital to you, to me, surviving 
a life of faith in a world set against God. The recipients of the letter are going through different phases of suffering leading up to the cataclysmic suffering that comes under the reign of Nero where Christians were treated so brutally and called upon publicly to renounce their faith in Christ. And so these three relationships were the sustaining relationships for a people who were going to be tested by the environment around them. These three relationships are rested in the gospel itself. They're rested in who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, and where Christ is taking us as a result of his work. And so these relationships are vital for our survival. Now, I'll kind of outline those relationships because they're not really woven into the outline that you have in front of you. The relationships are first, and you can scribble this off to the side, your relationship with God. My brothers and sisters, your proximity with God is the leading influencer of your survival in a wicked world. Your proximity, your nearness to God is the leading indicator of your spiritual well-being. The second is your relationship with yourself. I'm not trying to go new agey psychology on you, but I want to tell you that the one person that talks to you more than anyone else is you. You talk to yourself all the time. Now, a lot of times we don't want to admit it because we think we're going to be locked up in a little rubber room. That the guys in the white outfits are going to stop by and and they're going to sing that song, they're coming to take me away, ha ha, ho ho, he he, to the funny farm. You've heard that song. That's not what talking to yourself. We preach to ourselves all the time. We speak to ourselves constantly. And there's something wedged in here that's very important about how you Speak to yourself. And the third relationship is our relationship with fellow believers. Those three things are laid out as very important consequences of the gospel, but also very important preparations for applying the gospel and surviving in a world that is set against God and is constantly seeking to break down the faith of those who trust Him. The faith of those who place their relational hopes on Jesus Christ alone. And so, it's broken down into sort of a threefold mission. So, Robin, let's go to that part. Very first, the threefold mission of the recipients of the gospel. Now, I use the word mission here because I think that the writer to the Hebrews is giving them an assignment by way of exhortation. Now, exhortation is not a word that we use a lot today. It's not, it's not a, a popular word. It's not a 
a normal word for us, but it's important to understand what an exhortation is because the language of exhortation is used here and the word exhortation is used here. And so an exhortation is when somebody comes up beside you and gives you something that's halfway between a command and a word of encouragement. That's what an exhortation is. It's something that's halfway in between a command, an imperative, and a word of encouragement. It is an encouraging command or a commanding encouragement. And so there are three exhortations that are given here, and they're highlighted with the word, let us. Let me let you mark those real quick in your Bible. The first one is in verse 22, let us. We're not going to go through and, and break them all down yet, but I want you to mark them. Let us, verse 22, let us draw near. Then verse 23, let us hold fast. And then verse 24, and let us consider how. Those are the three exhortations, and each of those is built on the God relationship, the right relationship with our own selves inside our heart and mind, and then the right relationship with fellow believers. So basically, the writer of the Hebrews is setting us on a threefold mission. He's saying, if you believe this gospel, here are three things you need to immediately and enduringly engage yourself in because they will be a part, a vital part of your survival in a world set against God. So the first exhortation you'll find in letter A, let us draw near. Well, the question we have to say is, draw near to whom and to what? Well, verse 19 sets it up. Go there. Since then, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let's stop there a minute. What is the holy place? It was the holy of holies. It was the dwelling place of God. It was the place that only the high priest could go, and only once a year, and he couldn't stay, and he could only go in there with the, with the blood of an animal that had been slain. So, so he could only temporarily appear and hope for a covering of sin for the people and for him as an individual until the time of the Messiah. And so... This is what's going on, is this idea of entering into, listen carefully, the presence of God corporately when we worship and individually when we worship. It is the drawing near to God. This is the ultimate goal of the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus tells us in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The goal of the gospel is to bring you back to God in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked in fellowship and nearness with God. Sin came into the world and they were separated. In Christ, that separation is overcome because sin is vanquished and forgiven and we now get to draw near to God. The goal of the gospel, the ultimate goal of the gospel is for you to have intimate 
personal fellowship and relationship with your maker. For you to have a personal walk that is close in proximity and in heart to him. And so the writer says, here's what we're looking for. Let us draw near, verse 22. So that's the first exhortation. It's about your relationship with God. If you do not walk near to God, you will not survive this world. That is key. Now, it's interesting that the writer makes sure that we understand that this mission of the three exhortations has a manner in which they're carried out. So help me out, Robin, next point. The twofold manner of drawing near. Okay, so here's the goal. Christ has saved you to bring you to God. He's the mediator between you and God. He is the one who has brought about the the forgiveness so that God remembers your sins no more, so that you can draw near into intimate fellowship. But the writer says there are two components to your drawing near that are also vital. What does it say in verse 22? Let us draw near with, first, a sincere heart. Number one, under that little Roman numeral is with a sincere heart. The point here is to draw near to God without pretense. Pretense is when we pretend to be something that we're not. I don't know if you've seen lately that some of the people who've been hired by padding their resume have actually been investigated and found some leaders of corporations. People start doing some background checking after the person is hired and find out that they actually padded their resume and made pretense in their resume to look better than they actually were in order to get hired. But once the background check was done, once everything was investigated, these people had actually already been hired, but it took some sifting to find out that they didn't have this degree from here and they didn't do this accomplishment and they didn't work at this place. They'd come in with pretense and gotten hired, but once the truth was found out, they were actually terminated. Here's the deal with God. When you come to Him, He already knows what you're up to. Your resume is on display with clarity in front of him, and he knows why you want to be near him. And if you come to him with pretense, he will not receive that. That is why it says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. A sincere heart is the heart without pretense. There's two kinds of pretense. First, there's pretense with man. Pretense with mankind. Matthew 6, 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If you do the whole church, religion, praying, Bible reading, teaching, preaching, ministering thing to be noticed by people, and you think that's drawing you closer to God, your pretense is actually a barrier to your fellowship with God. God is not fooled. He is not mocked. He is not deceived. He's not tricked. 
is the first kind of pretense we have to look out for if we want to draw near to God is the pretense with people so that we try to look holy by holding a Bible or attending the service or teaching a class or preaching a sermon or serving in a, in a capacity in the church or holding an office. God sees through that and knows. The second kind of pretense is pretense with God. You see, it's not only man we try to impress. Sometimes we try to impress God, but things really aren't right. In Malachi 2.13, listen to what the word of the Lord said. And this is another thing. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does that one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. When we are having a willful sin in our lives and we try to approach God to get near Him, and we won't address the real issue of sin in our lives, it sets up a barrier. And God, He does not smile upon that. If we think that we can kind of balance our good and evil by having a really good emotional, religious meltdown and cry and pleading, but we're really not dealing with the issues of our heart where we have sin that is hidden and known to God alone or open to others and not dealt with, God is not going to bless the intimacy, the closeness, and the fellowship when we have pretense with man or with God. So he says there, read with me, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and, number two, a full assurance of faith. Why does he say that that's a part of drawing near to God? Well, the heart that draws near to God must be unpretentious and it must trust him. We come to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The full assurance of faith is the resting in faith alone as our means of approaching God. Flip over for just a second to chapter 11. It probably is just a column over in your Bible. It may be at one page over, but look in chapter 11. We'll start in verses 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 6. But look at what the Lord says about this issue of a full assurance of faith. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And then if you jump down to verse 6. And without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What is he saying there? He's saying the premise of coming to God is always faith in Jesus Christ. If we come to God and say, God, you're going to accept me because I'm doing better today. That doesn't work. God, you're going to accept me because I lived better this week and sinned less. That does not work. God, you're going to accept me because I gave more or I attended more or I served more or I taught more or I preached more. God, that's not... No. If we're going to draw near to God, it has to be without pretense and it has to be grounded in one thing, Jesus Christ. My only acceptance, my only standing, my only relationship to God is on the premise of my faith in the finished work 
of Jesus Christ. Nothing else gains me any standing before God. So we see the manner in which we come to God. Without pretense and with genuine faith. But there is a means by which we draw near. How can a holy God let a sinful person get near Him? My brothers and sisters, listen carefully. This is the enemy's tool. Here's his tool. To make you feel guilty enough to not bother to get close to God. That's the enemy's tool. He wants you, because of your sin, because of your failures, because of your own unrighteousness, because of your struggles, because of your temptations and weaknesses, the enemy wants you to feel such a burden of guilt that you do not try to get near to God because the closer you get, the more obvious your sin becomes. It makes you uncomfortable, and so you actually shy away. But what does the writer to the Hebrews say is the means by which we get through that? Look at this beautiful phrase. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What is he saying? That our path to God, to be close, to be intimate, to walk in true fellowship with Him, has nothing to do with our performance. It has everything to do that we come to Him with our dirty heart, we hold it out in earnest repentance, and He sprinkles our dirtiness with the blood of Jesus. We get what David refers to in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 51, where he says, Purify me with hyssop. This is a reference to when Moses dipped the hyssop branch, a leafy branch, into the blood of the animal sacrifice, and he sprinkled the people with it, and he sprinkled the book, and he sprinkled all of the inside of the temple, because that signified a cleansing from sin that was only symbolic, but is real now when you bring your heart to Jesus. He sprinkles your heart with his blood, And He takes away the stain of guilt from your conscience because He alone can forgive your sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west so that God remembers them no more. So how we come without pretense, we come in genuine faith, But we come knowing that all of our guilt and sin and stain is dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It's that evil, guilty conscience that wants to keep you from God. But it is the wonderful work of Jesus Christ that sprinkles that conscience and relieves it so you can once again be near God. But there's another component. Not only our hearts sprinkled clean, but having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, a lot of folks want to make this baptism. That is not what's being referred to here. Because the context of all that is going on here is a work of God, not a work of man. And so our bodies being washed with pure water refers back to 
He's making sure that everybody understands the context. And that was when the high priest was going to enter into the presence of God. When he was going to go past the veil. When he was going to go into the Holy of Holies. They would take him aside and from head to toe they would strip him down. And from head to toe they would wash his body with clean water. And rinse him with clean water. Giving him a sense of ceremonial Cleanness. What he's saying is that God wants to deal with your internal sense of guilt and your external sense of guilt, both through the same mechanism, through the work of Jesus. So that you can feel free. Go back up to verse 19. Look at verse 19. Put your eyes on it. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence you hear that? To enter the holy place. How do we get that confidence? Well, we show up without pretense. We show up in faith. And we show up having our hearts sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and our bodies washed by the work of Christ so that we can bust up into the presence of God and not be rejected. Think about that. He is saying that you can walk to be Face to face with God because of the work of Christ. You get to talk to the creator of the universe. You get to cast all your burdens on him. You get to intimately fellowship with him. You get to know that he loves you. I really think this is the kind of context that some of our hymns flow out of. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. God wants that fellowship with you. Your part is to, pre, without pretense and with genuine faith, arrive And because of that genuine faith, you experience the freshness of the sprinkling, the freshness of the washing. And you you know how you feel after you take a really good shower, after you've been working in the yard all day? You, You get around somebody, okay, I go to visit somebody at their house, and when I get there, they're working in the yard. And you know, I'm kind of a hugger. So I get ready to hug them and say, oh, no, 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 I just really stink. Listen, how much more when we get in God's presence, when we don't see our cleansing, Do we not want God to hug on us? And I wonder how many times because of our sense of filthiness we have withdrawn from the embrace of the Creator and walked at a guilty distance because we knew He could smell us. And so there is that sense of external and internal cleanliness where God in His washing, in His sprinkling says to you, In heart and body, because of Jesus, I will embrace, I will hold, I will tend you as a shepherd tends his sheep. So, second exhortation. The first one, let us draw near. Relationship with God. My brothers and sisters, if you will not walk near to God, you will not survive this earthly existence. It will overcome and overwhelm and overtake you and pull you back into it. But the second component 
is the relationship within our own self. Letter B, let us hold fast. One of the things that I am learning about Christian walk is that one of my chief labors in my life is to develop the consistency of my faith. The first way that we do it, how does he say? Look in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession. What is the confession? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the confession. That's the confession. It's the confession. Christ, God, Savior, King, who he is, the creator, the sustainer, what he has done, come down to earth, and he's lived perfectly and died substitutionally, sacrificially for my sins. He's been raised victoriously. And where is he taking me? He's taking me to be with God in all of eternity because of who he is and what he's done and where he's taken me. I embrace that confession of Christ, and I'm holding fast. But I must do so with consistency. My brothers and sisters, the greatest trouble I see in the modern American church is how quickly we we waver with circumstance. I'm telling you, Joel Osteen's got it wrong. Every day is not going to be a Friday. You're going to have some stinky days. Your health is going to suffer. Your wealth is going to suffer. Your emotional state is going to suffer. You may walk to the very edge of sanity and still be a strong believer. It is going to be hard to walk with Jesus in this world. But our challenge, my brothers and sisters, is to learn to develop an unwavering faith. What does that mean? It means that my faith does not attach itself to my circumstances. I'm going to have to get out my spiritual scissors and I'm going to have to cut the umbilical cord between my circumstances and my faith. I'm going to have to cut the apron strings between my circumstances and my faith. Because the God who loves me loved Joseph also. And it took incredibly hard circumstances for 22 years of that man's life to put him in the position to bring salvation to his own family. And some of you may take 22 years of incredible, intense, painful suffering to get you where God wants you to be so that you can be what you need to be to those around you who need you to be what God wants you to be. And so if we attach our faith to our circumstances, we will always be the wavering people. Somebody at church made me mad. I'm not going to come back. Come on. Come on. This, we, I'm not gathered here because somebody did or did not make me mad. And I hope that you can come to that place. I'm here because Jesus died for my sins. And you can do whatever you're going to do and you'll never change that. And we have to have that relationship with each other that is enduring and forgiving. I want to tell you, this many people, somebody's prone to make somebody mad. Look around. God's got us from all over the map in our backgrounds, in our context, in our experiences, in our education, in our philosophy, in our theology. He's gathered us from Catholicism. He's gathered us from Pentecostalism. He's gathered us from Mormonism. He's gathered us from hedonism. And he's brought us all here to worship Jesus. And we're prone to make each other mad somewhere along the way. My brothers and sisters, quit wavering with that. Stay 
horse. Because of the next phrase. He says without wavering, but what's the next phrase? Go ahead, Robin. He who promised is faithful. This is where I attach my faith. Not to my circumstances. I don't need to hear the promise that Jesus is faithful if it's going to be easy. If every day is going to be a Friday, I don't have to worry about Jesus being faithful because it's just going to be really grand all my life. But I'm sorry, that's not the way it works out. Here, I rest in this one thing, not my circumstances, but in Jesus. He's faithful. He's the one who gathered his disciples and he said this, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I will go to the Father and I will send another comforter and He will be with you always. Even Jesus said, it's better for you that I go. Did you know that it is better for us to have Jesus inside us than standing beside us? That is the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in us. He who promised is faithful. So, we go further. Letter C. And I think I may have put this wrong. It shouldn't say, let us hold fast. It should say, let us consider how. So, sorry about that. Let us consider how. There it is. Thank you. Let us consider how. So, this is the third exhortation. First exhortation is my relationship with God and intimacy. Intimacy. My second is my relationship with myself. I have to put my personal trust in Christ and preach the gospel to myself without wavering, telling myself every day, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. It gives me verses like First uh, Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians ten thirteen, where it says, "No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, also that you may be able to endure it." That verse is rested in God is faithful. So now I've got to go to the third relationship, and that's my relationship with others. Look in verse twenty four, and we close here. And let us consider how to stimulate one another. To love and good deeds. My brothers and sisters, God has designed these three relationships to be very important. My relationship with God, my intimacy, my closeness, my quiet time, my prayer time, my, my, my contemplation time with Him, my relationship inside myself where I am not wavering, but I'm trusting in the faithfulness of God and preaching the gospel to myself, but my relationship with my brothers and sisters, I cannot, I cannot overemphasize this. Very often we get into a mode where church becomes very selfish. Have y'all ever been there? Come on, tell me the truth. You ever been to like the selfish mode? Okay, there's like three people said they have. All right, come on. Have you ever gotten selfish about church? Yeah. Okay, I didn't like the music. I didn't like the temperature. I didn't like the preaching. I didn't like the link. Some kind of thing. And all of a sudden, it's really a lot about me. And then all of a sudden, because it's about me, I kind of catch a negative vibe about it. And I start spouting it off with my mouth. And here's the deal. Some people's faith around us is hanging by a thread. And we come along with our spiritual scissors and cut them loose 
with the things that do not eternally matter. And they fall into the abyss of despair. When you look around this congregation, you have no idea where people are. You have no idea. They may have on the happy. They may have on the clappy. They may have on the sappy. I love you. But they may be hanging at the very edge of their existence. And they may be hanging on the need for a word of encouragement from you that may determine the outcome of their present situation. That is why this relationship is given so much ink in verse 24. He says, And let us consider how to stimulate. Consider means that we give time and contemplation of how to best help others. We observe them. We fellowship with them. We identify with them. We weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And then we take specific, intentional steps to encourage them. Encourage means to come alongside. It's the same word as exhortation. It's a person who gets beside you and with a soft command and a strong encouragement, keep you in the walk, keep you in the race. God did not intend this to be a lonely walk. He gave us the church. And He intends us to walk together in words of encouragement. If I could tell you the times that people have sat in my office whose lives were greatly harmed by careless words of other church members who were not regarding the soul of the person that they talked with as a valuable thing. Paul gave us a summary statement about our mouths that I want to take you to. And I want to share it with you and ask you how it fits with your life. Listen to chapter 4 of Ephesians 4. Could you go there with me? And maybe make a connection with encouraging with this. Let's bring these two together. Because I want you to see how Paul puts it. Ephesians 4. Verse 29. This is a great phrase, by the way. This is a memory verse. This is a makeup mirror, shaving mirror, dashboard, refrigerator, wherever it is you hang scriptures. This is one of those verses. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word literally is rotten. That's a great word. Let no rotten word proceed from your mouth. But notice what he says. But only such a word as is good for edification. That means that what comes out of your mouth builds up the saints. It means to lay under them something strong, something viable, something supportive. Let no rotten word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification. The building up of the saints according to the need of the moment. That it may give grace to those who hear. Do you hear that? 
Jesus said this. No careless word which a man speaks will not be held on his account on the day of judgment. A couple of friends of mine and I were standing at the bus stop. We were in about, I don't know, eighth grade. We were all standing around the bus stop, and um, one of the girls that was at the bus stop, we were kind of picking on her, so we told her, we said, we're going we're gonna to roll your yard this weekend. That's what we're going to do. We're going to roll your yard. And so uh, I went out of town with my parents camping, but my other two friends went and rolled her yard, and at the same time, they took... Um, they took some kind of stuff and stuck it inside of all the door locks of the cars and the house. It clogged up every lock so they couldn't open their doors with keys. And so this guy figured that I was in on it, so he came by and told my brother to write a note to my mom and dad when they got back that when I got home, he was going to kill me. And he was serious. Thankfully, I was camping that weekend. I really didn't have anything to do with it. So we got back home. My dad read the note, and he packed me up in the car and said, we're going to his house. I said, he's going to kill me. We got to the house. I explained to him that I was kidding around and that I knew who did it, and I had to tell, and he knew that too because they had already uh, been talked with. And my dad got back in the truck, and he looked at me, and he said, son, what did I tell you? What did I say to you about careless words? said, yes, sir, Dad. When we begin to consider how the chief tool of encouragement is proximity and the second tool is words. Watch what happens. Look back in Hebrews and what does he say? Not forsaking our own assembling together. So I need to find a way to encourage you to love and good deeds. But the only way I'm going to first come in contact with that is by proximity to you. I need, in the negative he puts, not forsaking. We don't forsake our togetherness. I'm going to know your need through my fellowship with you. I'm going to know your need by hanging out with you. Whether it's in a really good Sunday school class, discipleship class, a worship, a time at our homes eating together. Whatever way I need to be in fellowship with you, you need to be in fellowship with me. We need to be in fellowship with each other so that we can observe where our needs are and consider how to do that. So the first thing I've got to do is not forsake hanging out. The church needs to fellowship with the church and presence should be encouraging. But look at the next word there, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And the word that is used there is the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter, parakletos, it means one who is called alongside. It means one who steps alongside and walks with you, speaking to you words of exhortation. So the two ways that we encourage each other, first is proximity, and second is what we say. James said the tongue is a fire. And it is set on fire 
by hell itself. That means there has to be within us an incredible sensitivity to what we say about whom and to whom. And that we take great care that all of our words come in according to Ephesians 4 for edification. That it may meet the need of the moment and give grace to those who hear. So what is the writer to the Hebrews doing? Watch this. He's saying gospel people. They embrace this forgiveness of sin and they busy themselves on this threefold mission. I want to walk in intimacy with God. I want to have integrity in my heart. And I want to walk in encouragement with other believers. Would you bow with me? I want to challenge you with something. I want to ask you how you're doing on those three relationships. If you were to rate your closeness with God, one being, man, I'm a long way away, and ten being, man, I'm really close and intimate, where would you be right now? Be honest. God's listening. Where would you say you are? Did you come today with some pretense? Did you come today... With some distance. Did you come today somehow thinking that your coming is what gets you close to God rather than Christ? How are you right now in your intimacy with God? It is the chief sustaining factor in your Christian walk. It is the thing that will bring you from the moment of salvation to the moment of glorification. Your intimacy with God. Where are you there? How about with yourself? Are you walking with integrity in what you tell yourself? Do you lie and tell yourself that things are okay when they're not? Or do you lie and tell yourself they're not okay when they are? Is there some way that you on the inside are not processing truth according to the gospel? And therefore you're not walking in integrity inside. Your faith keeps wavering not rested in Jesus would you would you commit today to working on that and third how about your relationship with the saints and with those outside the church would your lips be called encouraging lips would your tongue be the one that the scripture says the tongue of the wise brings healing Would folks around you be built up? Would they be given grace? Would it meet their need at that moment? You see, gospel believers have gospel relationships with God, with their own heart, and with others. And all three are vital. Now, some of you, the reason that you're struggling with all three is because you do not yet have a gospel relationship. You're not saved. You're here today, you're in church, you're close to believers, you're close to Bibles, you're close to songs, but but you're not close to God for one reason. You've never repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you really need to do that.
You have no idea how much time is left in your life to settle that issue. You have no idea whether or not your heart will become so hardened after today that you would never even consider it again. But this moment is an opportunity, having heard of God's love for you in Christ, to turn and to trust Jesus and to be saved. Others of you, there's an animosity in your heart to somebody. You're holding out against somebody. You're angry, you're bitter, you're unforgiving. And it's keeping you away from God, keeping you stirred up in your side yourself, and messing up your relationship with others. It's time to forgive them. It's time to let it go. It's time to say, Lord God, I give them over to your hands. I forgive them. Grant me the power to walk in that. You can come down to the altar today and pray about that. You can come and pray with me or Wendy will be here today to pray with you. However God is stirring, moving, encouraging your heart, would you stand and would you respond?